Hello, Red Center listeners. It's Mike Seymour. I just wanted to grab you, if I could, before we start this week's podcast and ask for a favor. Uh, don't worry, I'm not asking for money. Uh, and we'll start the show in, in just a few seconds. But we did have um, a request. This is a free service of fxguide.com. And we, I don't think, really ever ask you guys for anything particularly. But we would ask you on this one occasion, if you could do us a favor and go to our website, www.fxguide.com slash survey and just do a really, really short survey for us. We're in the process of, um, of fixing up FX Guide and revamping it and doing some really interesting things, all positive, and it would just help us enormously to get a bit of detailed data on who's actually listening to the podcast and who's uh, going to the website. So uh, that's it. It'll only, I think it's like uh, one or two pages. It won't take long. It's not one of those surveys that, um, that go on for forever. And you certainly don't need to spend a lot of time on it. But if you could just take a moment, uh, go to the website, fxguide.com slash survey, and just give us your feedback and your, uh, your demographics effectively. And that'll help us a lot in our, our plans moving forward. Well, that's it. Uh, thanks so much. And uh, hopefully I won't have to ask you for anything again. And uh, let's start the podcast. You are listening to Red Center, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's Red Centre. I'm Mike Seymour, and uh, in the studio with Jason Wingrove, who's no longer changing governments, but changing his world. How are you? <laughs> I'm well, thanks, mate. How are you? And you're back from Holes. So I am. We're I back in a, the same room. I had a terrific holiday. I can tell you nothing finer than hiring a yacht and sailing around the Whit Sundays. Um, one of nature's great places to go, but also uh, it was just, you know, I'm a I've been, my father's ex-Navy, I've been sailing since I was a child. Excellent. 30 knot winds, I'm bloody in heaven. Well, glad that you went because you did need to relax. I know, but I, we'll get more on that later. Um, <laughs> so let's, uh, we're going to, a great show coming up for you. Uh, later in the show, we'll be uh, actually uh, hopefully hooking up with Stu Mashowitz. Um, Stu wrote an amazingly interesting blog post, somewhat provocative. Some of you may have seen, um, which uh, actually called me out. So I'm happy to try and call him out uh, in return. And we also have an interview with an uh, amazing uh, photographic, well, I should say video um, project f- of a global nature. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I've signed up for something fool, the fool, to uh, document the world's story on 10th of the 10th of the 10th. So we'll be more about that later. So we'll have Kyle in the red room, uh, uh, Stu, but coming up all of that after the news. And now... The Red Centered News. Lots of red news this uh, time. All the red people will be much, much happier. But uh, it's a bit of a red-centric week. Um, first thing, obviously, Jim came on board on Red User for a couple of hours the other night and uh, did a whole bunch of Q&A, answering a lot of people's questions. And Now, people, I've been completely were, offline. What, what happened? Have. What was the hero kind of star points well obviously people were people with the bug were basically were keen to find out what had happened with uh, software bugs are we moving forward um and when we're going to see and obviously scarlet stuff when we're we going to see it uh so theoretically the main uh push was and the main answers were that we would definitely see uh, epic by the end of the year uh and that epic uh, by the end of the year epic by the end of the year Tattoo before then? Tattoo before then. Okay, good. Yep, Tattoo will go out soon as they've now got a stable platform. The bug is uh, dead. The engineering team's put a bullet any, in the back. Any word on what the bug was? Pull it in the back, back of its head. No, and it weren't going into, okay. into what the bug was. Anyway, it's dead. And what about um, Scarlet? Uh, Scarlet to be available by the end of the year. Hmm. I think the end of next year. I think we're going to see the end of next year. Wow. Mm. That wasn't what they said, though. They said the end of this year? Yeah, they did say the end of this year. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's what they said. Uh, and what else? Uh, 
Uh, okay, Red Map Box will be available with Epic, which will be fantastic. Um, now, one of the big things was Red Moat and Red Moat Pro. I'll be able to control the motors inside Canon, Nikon, Fuji, oh, uh, really? third-party third lenses, which we were sort of theorised that it would be a little bit harder than we thought to maybe crack some of the uh, you yeah. know uh, reverse engineer, I guess, the way the way Canon and, and, and Nikon do their autofocus. Oh, God, I'm so getting a Canon mountain on my Scarlet. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. You absolutely. I mean, it sort of seals the deal now that you can basically, and obviously, the, all the people I guess that are holding out and maybe have gone into the DSLR land and don't feel so bad about investing perhaps in in L glass lens and not necessarily lashing out in stuff like. Um, you can still, I guess. Oh, I guess there's still validity to it if you're going to buy like Zeiss ZEs and things like that. So I, you can have autofocus because yeah, that's also going to be Scarlet with Canon lenses, and I yeah, want and you're going to have the touch focus. You're going to have the touch focus on the screen. Oh, really? So oh, I really? Cool. Yeah. Work well. Um, any word on the um, your favourite thing, um, or is it not? Look, I did ask. Um, it, essentially, it's trailing Epic Super Thirty Five by a reasonable amount of time. This so is the full frame thirty five. This is the full frame thirty five, which is obviously what I was what I was keen to find out about. And uh, the focus is going to be on Super Thirty Five Epic, getting that out the door, and then Scarlet. First Scarlet is going to be out the door are going to be the fixed lens, mm-hmm. uh, fixed zoom, um, and uh, so full frame thirty five Monstro chips are going to be after that. So um, yeah, that's pretty much <laughs> that's pretty much the news. Um, okay. Yeah, it was, but anyway, it was good to see Jim back in there, and he answered a whole, whole ton of questions. So the links to to that in the show notes, and so obviously also in Recon on on Red User. Now there was something about the compression ratios, right? And this is um, is of interest to me because it's exactly in line with what I worked out, though it doesn't sound like it is. Because I'd often said that Red Code, normal Red Code, was about thirty to one compression based on the fact. Um, that it's three channels. And, of course, they're saying that it's, what, it's more like 10 to 1, right? Yeah, right. like Red Code 42 is 7.5 to 1, Red Code 28 is 10 to 1. Yeah, but, see, my point is that that's consistent if you encode a Bayer sensor, which is one set of readings, mm. and if you triple that for what it would be if it was three, uh, which it obviously isn't, three CCDs, then that would be 30 to 1, which is exactly what I've always said it would be equivalent to if you were to try and work it out on a non-compressed a full frame non uh, Bayard chip, so that makes sense. Um, I, I look, I it's a moot point, right? Like, who gives a rat? It looks yeah, good. look, I mean, it looks. I mean, it's definitely a moot point for me. The compression looked everything's everything's looked fantastic from like build eighteen on. So you know, it's all just icing on the cake. I guess it starts to um, affect guys that are probably digging deep into the data and doing effects and pulling keys and all that sort of stuff. And when you really start to push the footage up either end of the scale and then start to try and want to do stuff with the footage later, then I guess it's all going to be more of an issue. Um, but uh, but there is look. another, you mentioned like since build 16, I think then, but mm. there is another whole build coming, right? Like a whole new kind of, um, I don't know what you call it really, like upgrade to the... Yes. Firmware slash color science. Yeah, look, literally yesterday, I think um, Jim said that there's some major improvements coming. I'm no doubt with the next build um, for for in, obviously in developing Epic and in developing um, Scarlet, they've worked out some fantastic uh, uh, changes to um, noise characteristics, color stability, uh, dynamic range, uh, and a lot of that they can now actually pass down just with the build change to to Red One. 
to Amex Red Ones, I presume. Amex Red One. That's yeah. what I understand. Because, yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you, right? Like, it's the same chip. So if you've got improvements, uh, I presume yes. it wouldn't apply to the M series. Uh, I think it's great that they're doing that, by the way. I mean, I really do. Like, I think it's... Uh, they. You could have almost argued, well, they've done it once. They don't need to do it twice. And they didn't well, They didn't have to pass on that stuff to no. Red One. They didn't have to switch on all these extras. They could make that a point of difference. Yeah. Given with delays of Epic and all that sort of stuff, they if could basically... you get basically more dynamic range out of the MX, I'm going to be so happy. Mm. I mean, it's fantastic as it is, but yeah, if there's, there's definitely if there's changes. We're not talking about little things. Definitely mentioning dynamic range, that's all plus. But I think the big story is here is the fact that they've not denied it from Red One users. You know, that they, they had the ability from a marketing point of view to make an even bigger leap from Red One to, to Epic and chose not to. Can I, can I have a tiny rat hole? There's a video floating that I got a- emailed and I'll, we can put a link to it in the show notes. Somebody's got a stereoscopic rig with two reds and they've put a couple of stops difference on the two reds on the stereo rig but then rigged it for the overlap being complete as opposed to stereoscopic right and so what you've got is basically two reds shooting the same footage at two completely different exposures in real time right and that gives you two what would normally be left and right eye but is actively like two left eyes if that makes sense but one of them at completely different exposure to the other and then they've combined them with some keying and stuff to give you high dynamic range moving footage and you look at it and I think it's like slightly stacked in the sense that the pre-footage looks so bad because it was either Over overexposed or, under. or underexposed. That being said, when you see the combined footage, you go, oh, that's what I want. I want that. Does it look interesting? Uh, it, looks, it looks awesome. It, I tell you what it does. It's like, for example, there's sky, and instead of the sky being white out, it's got, it's got blue. Now, it's not mm. so HDR-y that yeah. it's got that horrible... Yeah, just um, more like your eye would see it. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's definitely worth looking. Put it in the show notes, but you, you can't describe this. You have to watch it. But as soon as you see it, you go, well, yeah, if there was a button that did that, I'd press that button. Wow. Um, and I think that's one of the things... I, I'm going to mention this because it's what I'm looking forward to, an epic that will never come, I don't think, into the um, red one with the MX. Right, making no. We'll get that into the show notes. Yeah, there's actually two clips they've done. Yeah, it um, sounds like they haven't pushed it either, which obviously just put most people off if you just go to... No, it's not that kind of ugly uh, stuff. It's I'm actually surprised really no one's nice. tried it before. I mean, I've often thought that would be a great way to do it. It's just, you know, yeah. no doubt there's a lot of pain involved in getting that just right and then syncing them up and completely mixing it. Then I guess the processing of tone mapping it uh, at 24 or whatever frames a second. Yeah, Probably because... a lot of well, grunt to do that. Well, it's not really... Yeah, the way they've done it, it wasn't really even a tone map, I don't think. What they kind of effectively did is like what you might call just keyed it together, mm-hmm. as it were. Um, mm-hmm. But it's... Yeah, keyed, keyed high, into highlights, and just, just, just sectional keying. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? It just... It looks good. Um, there's just no two ways about it. It just looks good. And it's one of those things that you go, well, yeah, that's... Uh, as I said, it's it's... Not deliberately, but it's kind of biased because the before and afters look kind of shit because they're obviously, you know, done with wrong exposures to get the effect to happen in the first place. So, mm. but that being said, there's no doubt about it. You just, it's one of those, you know, times when you see that and you go, oh, okay, if that's what I'm getting, I, I want that. Wow. Oh, that's interesting. Um, that sounds cool. Yeah. And so, then obviously, once you've got that, then you can then push it. You can, you know, push it for an effect or for a look, which you probably couldn't get um, without a lot of post pain. Uh, okay. In terms of... Well, if you wanted to go for a really sort of strong HDR look. Yeah, but nobody wants to do effect. that, do they? It sucks that really strong <laughs> HDR look. It can look interesting and not necessarily that sort of real estate look, but, you know, 
I've I've seen some interesting portrait stuff that looks kind of wild, which I've been. Well, anyway, David uh, McSween is uh, the person that emailed us about this, and David is um, uh, a listener, obviously, and uh, he he's very complimentary about. Uh, very kind of him about Red Center and he just posted this because of some stuff that they were doing and they thought that they'd um, put it together and have a look at it I don't know whether David did the video I can't quite read that or whether he found the video okay um, but I thank David for bringing it to my attention and uh, we'll put it in the show notes okay so awesome. now speaking uh, of websites <laughs> yes Pro Lost yeah yes you sent me a one-word uh, email during the week, which uh, just as of I got course you hadn't seen it because you were uh, swanning around the Whit Sundays or whatever. I actually had because Stu sent me an email right after he posted it saying, uh, "Sorry." Uh, well, no, he didn't say sorry, but he was like, <laughs> I, "I hope I haven't gone too far." In, um, you know, he's, he's a nice guy, he's a friend. He was, you know, trying not to be um, yeah. nasty. No, it wasn't. But really. it's ironic because, he, as uh, as I mentioned, he uh, he was asking me to relax. Quite frankly, felt pretty relaxed. <laughs> Um, let's see if we can get Stu on the line now. Uh, Stu, how are you, my friend? Uh, I'm good. How are you guys doing? Good. So the irony is that you uh, published this piece about how we should relax. Though so at the time that uh, you did it, I was actually uh, with my feet up on the back of a yacht. I couldn't have been more relaxed if I tried. I was in the Whit Sundays <laughs> with a cocktail. I, I, I think of all the people that you could have accused of being uptight at that particular incident in time i was uh, high on the list of people that were very relaxed but anyway um what yeah i was instantly envious of that too by you. the way what prompted you to um uh to publish this piece that you so brazenly attack some of the greatest filmmakers of our time excluding jason Winbrook? <laughs> well not yeah, that i'm including just, myself I, in that pool, pool but thanks for not making it eight fetishists okay <laughs> yeah you know i just i really wanted to do just a cutthroat attack piece just a brutal vitriolic uh post with nothing but hatred it coursing through my veins <laughs> oh good well that's um, nothing for, congratulations. for the internet yeah great uh <laughs> okay no but no, seriously let's quite, discuss the point you the yeah. so um, well obviously quite the opposite of yeah that. that's no bad blood. i uh, this is my this is my backhanded way of showing my respect for uh for some people who I admire and with whom I've uh, in some cases had uh, the pleasure of working with or or having professional discourse and yeah um, yeah, yeah yeah get past the good stuff let's <laughs> let's get into an argument so I I uh, I didn't come here for a for He's a, ready for another here for an argument. Um, He's ready yeah, for another holiday. Yeah, so let's up, let's put pick them up. Let's, let's go. okay. Well, then there's about uh, seven points here. Let's start with mine. Bit depth mm-hmm. fetish. Now you claim that, and, and I I was okay with you posting this. I have terrific. It was great. I think it's great. But I have a big problem with the last line, um, or maybe the second last line. So I'm going to ask you straight out of the gate three questions. Question number one, Stu Meshwitz, when you put your 5D to your eye to take a still photo, are you shooting in JPEG or RAW? Oh, absolutely raw. Are you kidding me? So, so what's this crap about more professional photographers than ever will admit that shoot JPEG instead of RAW? Well, I mean, not good ones, but, you know... <laughs> Because my point Bad is, my point is as simple as this: that I would, I like shooting raw. I would shoot JPEG happily if I need to shoot stop frame animations that are going to run for a really long time, and I'm worried about disk space on an eight gig card or something. I, I don't say that JPEGs are bad. I happily take photos with my iPhone when it's the camera I have with me. But in a normal situation where I've got normal control over things, especially when I'm working professionally, I will always shoot raw, and I was willing to bet you would too. So I don't quite get this um, implication that uh, that JPEG is good enough. 
All right, well, I'll, I'll explain. Um, and, and in explaining, I will reveal myself to be absolutely preoccupied with the kind of technical details that I'm, you know, purporting to say aren't so important in this article. It's, I'm going to reveal the truth, which is that I am the ultimate geeky fetishist about a lot of these technical things. And I, and I think that people should be. I just think that it's possible to, everyone has their spike, their one thing that they take too seriously. And I I think one needs to look at all these things in a, as a balanced whole. So, so in the case of bit depth, um, we talk about raw. We talk about sometimes the raw of your 5D being what is the raw on the 5D? Is it 12 bit or 14 bit? I mean, people compare those kinds of numbers. Um, those numbers matter because those are the that's the bit depth of the uh, linear light uh, signal that's recorded uh, to the card. And a low bit depth on a linear light image is definitely death. It means uh, blocked up uh, detail in the shadows. It means banding and uh, ugly, ugly stuff. Um, however, if you were to take that raw uh, file and use a software like Adobe Camera Raw or Lightroom, which has a zeroed, uh, has a zeroed profile that you can load. I, I, I blogged about this a couple of years ago. There's settings you can use in Camera Raw to sort of make sure that you're getting everything out of the raw file and into like a TIFF or even a JPEG. And if you followed those instructions and made sure that you kept every last bit of the raw, um, underexposed just a little bit to, to bring in not the shot but the raw conversion to make sure you were getting all the highlight data, used the native white balance of the sensor, and then added just the tiniest little bit of noise as dithering and saved that out as an 8-bit file, you would have something that I think, Mike, even you would consider to be indistinguishable from the original raw data in terms of its color correctability and post-manipulation capability. Okay, well, let's say this. It's Firstly, I, I would say totally I'm with you that in the days that we were telecines, we would put film up and we'd run the film out and we'd quite often go to a digi beta, which would be 8-bit, and we'd happily yep. grade that and work with it in post, kid in flame, grade it in DaVinci, do whatever we wanted to, even take it back into a tape-to-tape -tape session. And we would produce award-winning, world-class, professional broadcast images. Digibeater is 8-bit. Sorry? Digibeater is 8-bit. Well, it can be, yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, and it was 8-bit with actually 2-to-1 compression, though. No one ever acknowledged that. Okay, mm -hmm. but so that's fine. I, that I agree with. Having said that, uh, the reason that a lot of people love RAW is that it gives you grading latitude when you don't get the exposure perfectly right. And I would say to you that in... The case of Reed American Cinematographer this month where they discussed the film Inception where they decided to shoot uh, film and the first thing the DOP says when challenged over the fact that he shot film rather than digital is I like it because it gives me latitude, it gives me a couple of points above and below and Jason, in a perfect world, you just don't necessarily nail the exposure right out of the gate. So if you yes, Definitely. shoot perfectly and transfer perfectly, you get great images but wouldn't you prefer grading latitude? Absolutely. But, uh, you know, as Stu says in his next line, 8 bits is plenty if they're the right 8 bits. So, yeah, you've got to be a little bit more careful about it. But, but you uh, don't get that's the just choice one of, the... of picking those 8 bits if you poorly expose or inaccurately expose your uh, SLR video. Sure. Yeah, but my my point there, Mike, is that uh, is that if you poorly or inaccurately expose your HDSLR video, it's going to be the compression that's going to kill you more than the bit depth because the perception the the, the, the perceptual encoding of the H.264 means that 
the compression algorithms are putting the bits, the few bits that they have to build each frame where they think you're going to notice them most, and that usually means not the shadows. So recovering some lost exposure in an SLR video is challenging, but it's not, um, you're not pulling up the banding of, of um, too few uh, you know, granulations of distinction between shadow values. What you're pulling up okay, is... So- so, yes, you are. Compression artifacts. Uh, okay, so, uh, well, all right. So, uh, so, you're right that the compression is probably making it worse, but the 8-bit isn't helping. And if you had to have compression, having only 8 bits to compress into doesn't, doesn't aid the process. And yeah, at the end of the day... Yeah, but if you had to choose, I'd take, I'd take uh, less compression. Oh, yeah, but you over... don't have the choice, right? You, you, you have... So, I think my... Uh, serious point about this is that I totally agree with you that the compression is more, as you said, than the 8-bit recording. And if I've given the impression that I only care about the 8 bits and not about the compression and the line skipping and all the other stuff, uh, I apologize. But the bottom line is when I get footage, uh, and we've done this recently, we shot with some uh, 5Ds, 7Ds, uh, red cameras, um, shooting simultaneously the same stuff, and we try and intercut it all together. We just don't have the grading latitude on those uh, seven Ds that we do off the reds. Just we don't have it. It's just not sure. there. You just have to be that more disciplined about yeah. getting your exposure right. And it's like the old days of reversal. And just you know. To go just back get to my right. original point about we survived with eight bit. We also survived with with you know seven twenty by five seven six, and we wouldn't today find that particularly acceptable. And so sure. So in the future we won't that, find it so this so acceptable. Absolutely. But I would say, and and I would. And I know that you sort of agree with this too, but I would say that you have been singularly obsessive with 24p. I mean, you've built a a, a huge loyal Whole following career. of people that have, <laughs> have have fallen in line with you over 24p. And I would say, you know what? Relax. 25p looks pretty good. And um, oh but, well, I, 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 don't, I I'm with you there though. I, I don't I don't draw much of a distinction between 24 and 25. I just happen to live in a 24 country so sure. but also you know what yeah. for a lot of people 30 looks pretty darn good and for a lot of people that are shooting unprofessionally like you know just happily shooting stuff 30 looks fine it doesn't look very filmic but it looks totally fine no, it um, looks like total garbage <laughs> but you've been, okay, but does. you have been more of a fetishist on 24 than any man i know and i applaud you for it because actually it's the striving for excellence that i think is almost worth as much as the goal of achieving it um so i would actually say to you that yeah it's true about the compression uh and the eight bit but it's not enough it's not enough and we shouldn't be comfortable with it when we could have so much more and as i say i just end up coming back to the do you shoot raw or jpeg and if you're happy to shoot jpeg and you're happy to shoot 30 frames a second then you're probably not just doing the kind of work that this podcast is aimed at and I fetish about. But there you go. That's my, that's my, uh, I rest my caseness. Sorry, is this the five minute <laughs> argument or the full half hour? <laughs> yes, thank you. Okay, so let's move off from me because I think we're not in that much disagreement to, uh, to gear fetishists, which by the way, we don't have Vincent on the line, but we do have Jason who's quite <laughs> good at, uh, at gear fetishists and I must admit to owning a Steadicam myself. So I think your point at the end of your uh, second one, Stu, which is that mm-hmm. uh, Vincent should uh, grab a 50 mil lens is terrific advice to anyone. I mean, that's a really good thing to do. Well, and specifically in his case, I mean, he's the kind of artist who has shown that he can do that, you know, that he, he doesn't, he hardly needs the toys. And he knows that as well as anyone. He's even blogged about that recently, that he 
is going to uh, focus a little bit less on the toys and all that. So I, I you know, I, I'm friends with Vincent and I've worked with him and, and uh, am a huge admirer of his work. So it's probably important to to mention that I'm I, I use him as, a, as an example because he's uniquely qualified to throw all that gear aside and just grab a camera and make something awesome. He's he's he, he we all have heard of him because he's good at doing just that. I'm reminded of a great thing I read once that the uh, uh, I'm going to get it wrong, but it was like the one of the most famous American uh, speeches of all time, like uh, um, a founding father kind of speech done. Obviously, it wasn't the, end, the, the Declaration of Independence, but you know, it was kind of that era. Um, Gettysburg Address, I think it was, was written on the back of a lunch wrapper. And, uh, <laughs> and the, the person that wrote this actually was writing about um, something very similar to this problem, which is the uh, problem that writers have in saying, if I had just the right weight of paper, if I had just the right pen, if I, yeah. I can't work here because the light isn't quite right and I, <laughs> I need a perfect atmosphere to, you know. And then if you uh, really, you know, put that to one side for a second and say, you know what, uh, if you can write the Gettysburg Address on on a lunch wrapper, you probably can can get by with a lot less. And a lot of that stuff, I think, can be things you put up to stop yourself from doing photography. I know I've had occasions where I've said, I won't take those photos this weekend because I'm going to get a new lens in a couple of weeks. And I'll, and that's just stupid. Like you actually um, putting gear in the way of getting your work done as opposed to using yeah. it as a facilitator for it. Not that you're saying that about Vincent, but I think it's a parallel point. You can just at times go, you know what, whatever I've got, I'll make the best use of what I've got. Well, I guess Vincent's thing uh, was he's coming, having come from Stills, to, Stills sort of background is sort of, oh my, oh my God, I can suddenly move the camera. Clearly, he's overcompensated. And now, <laughs> and now he's well, he in his own admissions. After, uh, he, he realized after Reverie that uh, you know he, he had he had been familiar with working with various kinds of cool camera mounts, including those gyroscopes and whatnot. But after Reverie, he really realized that the ability to move the camera smoothly and professionally uh was going to be a distinctive factor in terms of production value when he was starting to switch from stills to motion and, th- and that suddenly a whole new world of gear was not just opening up to him but was also kind of making itself necessary if you wanted those kinds of cinematic camera moves that were that we all associate with higher production value and and that i i completely share that point of view and 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 have and and share that kind of obsession with finding, uh, I mean, we'll get to me in a minute, but accessible ways of... Uh, oh, yeah, we're working uh, our way there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're saving uh, the best for last. Of getting those kinds of uh, dramatic uh, camera moves. So, y- y- you know, I- I- I'm probably as-, as bad as he is in that regard of, uh, you know, pushing off a shoot until I can get just the perfect slider rig or whatever. But you have to go uh, that way, yeah. I think you have to go that way and you have to explore all that sort of stuff to realise and then to sort of be able to come back to it. You know, I've been shooting yep. handheld for years and now I'm actually just starting to find the joy of a tripod and actually those little buttons on the side which make it not move. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess yep. for me, I am a little concerned that um, there are a bunch of videos that have been going up and I take, I'm not trying to accuse anyone of anything, but not people on this list, but they're just people that have been putting up videos. And they'll typically do something like, I've just got this new Brand X slider. And so they'll just do some really magnificent, cool shots uh, on this slider or on this mini jib, whatever it is. And they are. They're really nice shots, well-lit shots. They have no normal, normally, they have no narrative content whatsoever. They are just shots. Guilty. And 
And I, I look at them and I go, well, they're really good. But at some point, a really nice, gentle move with incredibly shallow depth of field needs to be motivated by something. And I, I, yeah. I'm, I just hope those people go to the next level of making the film that tells the story and not just stopping at posting on, you, you know, Vimeo the the three-minute test that looks cool. Well, I guess this is part of that whole learning thing. I guess you have to sort of cut these people these people you have to cut people slack i guess you have to explore all this stuff and know how it works and then you know eventually learn once you once you know how it works and you get over the sort of you know wank fest of it then you can you know start yeah, to use there, start to use it judiciously yeah there's an equivalent thing in visual effects mike i'm sure you've seen this a lot where there's a, like a junior compositor who has a reel that has one shot followed by 17 minutes of breakdowns of how they did that one shot and <laughs> And any seasoned professional would instantly know how that shot was done and would love to just move on to the next actual shot and not see all of the kind of uh, self-flagellating <laughs> kind of uh, here's how I did it stuff. You know? Yeah, and um, in fact, it, I was reviewing some showreels for FX PhD and somebody did that. They did the breakdown. And as I pointed out, an error in their final shot I had not noticed until they went into the breakdown. And then I like, <laughs> noticed that the mat wasn't very good. And then I noticed it was actually in the final, but it was kind of hidden back because it was one of 15 layers. It's the kind of thing that's more appealing to people not industry. I mean, I love watching. I mean, you show me your stuff and, you know, obviously for FX Guide, you do a lot of that breakdowns as well. I just love watching it. It's very, very interesting as a director to see how somebody else approached it. But maybe from a VFX side of things, it's a bit sort of dull. But but there is this... It's just so interesting that that people get confused sometimes and think it might qualify as the main event on a reel when it it never should. Mm. Yeah. But I do think in terms of story, like... Uh, and we're doing something in PhD just to come back to that on um, with Tom Gleason, who's the DOP that Jason you've worked with, and mm. we're doing this thing on moving a camera. And one of the interesting things we were picking up on was uh, using like a slider or a dolly in our case for uh, for the establishing shot. Obviously, in the traditional sense, you have the establishing shot, like the big wide establishing shot, and then you would go in for the action. It's kind of awkward sometimes to just cut into the action. So you cut into a shot that comes up from behind something or moves around to reveal something. And in a especially episodic drama, um, you can imagine that's a really good way into that next scene. We've come out of the last scene and we have this kind of momentary move that sort of reveals a bit more from behind the test tubes around the edge or whatever it is. And those kind of motivated moves are not uh, necessarily specifically story-driven in the sense that it's showing something, but it's a, it's a lovely establishing shot without just going for the big wide and, and punching in for the close-ups. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a real art to when that shot works and when that shot's distracting and confusing, there's a real art to when that shot is the right amount to get me into the story and, and self-indulgent and takes me out of the story. And that's the craft that doesn't appear on the Vimeo three-minute tests of my latest slider. But yeah. I think actually it's a more interesting challenge. Just using it judiciously and when to use it. and you gotta, you know, you gotta, I guess you've got to learn that stuff. And it's only when you start to insert those shots into narrative and you work out where they do work and where they don't... And, you know, and work out why you probably shouldn't move every every single shot. Which brings me to my next point, because uh, this one in your list is uh, Philip Bloom's about um, a boker and, and very shallow depth of field. And I don't know if you've... I, I doubt you probably have, but there was a film that I just saw last night uh, called Farewell. It's a French uh, spy film. Gorgeous film. And it had one of the couple of shots in it that were magnificent. One shot in particular where they just had a really shallow depth of field, where um, it was the very end of the film, not giving anything away, but... It's a very, very tense moment and you're in the back of a car and you're focused on the people that are obviously right in front of the camera on left and right of screen from the back seat, the camera is mounted. As they go into the night, 
the light for the ambient environment drops away so they go into complete darkness but they left the focus on them so right. now you've lost mm-hmm. the focus of the foreground all you have out in front of you is very very out of focus bokeh type shot and it holds for forever and it's so tense because you can't see what's going on you don't know if something's about to hit i mean it's just a magnificent you know use of uh storytelling mm. using a shell depth of field um and the reason i bring this up is because uh in your things do you comment that a lot of films that you really like are shot on 35 millimeter without an f4 which actually has quite a lot of things in focus yeah yeah i, I, I and and yet exactly I'm, what you said is so true i mean the, the example i always think of is let the right one in which has such a beautiful use of of shallow focus and it's used in that film in the same way that that philip tends to use it which is to create a, a sense of intimacy when the actual physical environment does not lend itself to that sense of intimacy. So um, in the same way that you can control the left and right and top and bottom edge of the frame, shallow depth of field gives you an extra framing tool, which is to frame in depth. You know, you can really make a person feel isolated and you can feel as an audience member that you've gotten inside their head and you're having a very private moment, even when you're in a crowded exterior uh, open air kind of setting so that's spectacular and it's so effective that it's tempting to overuse it you know and even in let the right one in with professional crews and probably a a, a very stressed out focus puller there are times where the focus slips and and, and these are actors hitting marks and sure. f- free to do repeat takes and and uh it, you just do run the risk of um, turning your shallow depth of field obsessiveness into a new look, which is not shallow depth of field, but which is uh, hunting for yeah. focus. That's and when it becomes tire- tiring. But I can't I, see, I cannot see yeah. if it's done right. I can't see if you're using it for that emotion, if you're using it for that intimacy and to help, as you say, Mike, with the narrative. I can't see how that could ever get tired. It only gets say, tiring if you, if you do it wrong. Stu, you're talking to a guy who on set said to me, let's just gaffer tape the camera at one at one four down and just leave it at that. Yes. Hey, um, so, Stu, <laughs> let me ask you, what did you think of the last scenes in House Shallow depth of field in his uh, bathroom. Yeah, it's a perfect example. I, I mean, I thought it was beautiful and, and, and absolutely motivated the reason to use that camera. Uh, I, I, I mean, I just thought it was great, you know. Um, you know, I only... I, I, I wrote about Philip's obsession with shallow depth of field because I share it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not exactly the freshest and newest conversation to talk about the pros and cons of leaning too heavily on that uh, crutch. Um, it so happens that Philip uses it very, very well, and he combines it with that that ability that he has to walk up to a complete stranger and get them to ha- be become very candid and vulnerable in front of his gigantic, convoluted rig that he's wearing. Uh, you know, it's it's he produces he puts the results on the screen. Um, unfortunately, uh, like Vincent, Philip has a lot of readers and followers and fans and folks who look up to him and they see the result and they don't necessarily see the craftsmanship and the, and the struggle that he's gotten to, to, to get to the point where he can make those shots on the fly out in public with only a backpack's worth of equipment with him. 
Yeah, they say, too have to discover this themselves, I yeah, guess. I it's say, one absolutely, of and they will. And that's, that's the thing, is we, we don't have to wish ill on anyone. They're all going to yeah. go get their, their fast 50s, and they're all going to go try it out, and they're all going to come away with a new respect for yeah. uh, the, the work that, that inspired them to get that gear. So but, I, I, there, there's no... Uh, there's no big like hey like finger wagging watch yourself kind no, of I this one. <laughs> sure just, sure uh, sure but the proof is the fact that it works when it's involving people and when it has heart and it has humanity and so, it has so question number two narrative you, yeah. do you own a 50 mil lens oh i own a couple of them yeah <laughs> and uh what f-stop would they be uh one is f1.4 and the one that i predominantly use is f1.2 <clears throat> Okay. Where it stays and, and now, uh, now, much. Now, uh, Mr. Mashway, I'm just wondering whether you notice a big difference between 1.4 and 1.2 for the $1,000 more that you paid for it. Say yes. Uh, well, say you know, it's actually, yes. I mean, I know you've been doing tests with that lens. It's, yes. not, it, it's not the difference between the stop. To me, it's the difference between the build quality of the lens. It looks like you got a pretty good uh, thrifty 50. I, I, I didn't. I, mine, was, mine had halo. Thrifty problems. 50 would be about the most condescending term for a very nice 1.4. We're not talking about a 1.8 no, no, here, right? That's like, I give you that's like... <laughs> it's not a 1.8, um, no. But yeah, okay, I suppose the right. 1.8 is the thrifty 50. Anyway, I didn't. I was I was having trouble with with my 350 dollar 50 millimeter. So I, you know, and I, 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 I rented the um, the the f 1.2, and I just never wanted to give it back. And it's it's the lens I use most often, so I splurged a little bit. I'm not going to sit here and tell anyone that they need to buy that lens. I'm, no, I'm, I just, uh, just constantly I'd, recommend. Just thought I'd uh, check the, that point. Um, so let's yeah, go on absolutely. to. Uh, so I guess you're off the ledge on that choice then, Mike. Look, I, I, uh, I tell you an honest uh, answer to because Jason's referring to that that I've been trying to toss up with. I should buy one point two or stay with my one point four, and I like my one point four a lot. The thing yeah. for me actually is um, there is one other uh, factor, which is the style of photography I do is I tend to take a camera with me everywhere, and the more yeah. weight I get, there's a point at which I have to lose a lens, and yeah. I have a fifty, a uh, thirty-five, a twenty, and a hundred. So those are my four primary. I'm going to have other lenses like a 70 to 200. I'm not going to carry the 70 to 200 with me because it's too heavy. And of those four lenses, I've discovered I, a comfortable weight in my backpack with my laptop and stuff is three lenses. Now, I'm just worried if I turn the 50 to a 1.2 that that'll be a comfortable weight will drop to two lenses. Yeah, and that's fair enough. It is considerably heavier. And also, I've got yep. to say, I have a nice 35. It's a L series and... Uh, You've got an opportunity cost as well. You know, if I spend my money on this, I'm not spending it on something else. And yep. I'm not yet convinced. So I must admit, I did, in fact, splurge out and buy a, a slider instead of buying a 1.2. Um, I think I think that's the right decision to make. Honestly, I'd, I never would have bought the 1.2 if my 50 had been a my, my my original 50 had been a good copy. I just don't think it was a good copy. It was just yeah. soft. You know, yeah. I just it wasn't a good one. And maybe yeah, I could I, I, I took it back and had it serviced like two or three times. So I I just kind of I have a bad impression. I think of my my one copy of the of the f1.4 i think also for me the 5d with a 1.4 is just a really good sweet spot it's just it doesn't feel bulky it doesn't feel heavy and it produces uh well i think you and i discussed this once it's just uh it's like a photographic journey a 50 on yeah. a 5d that yep. is just teaches Absolutely. you more about filmmaking almost than anything else but let's move on to to jim and and the red camera uh the whole premise of doing uh, 4K. Now, obviously, I'm a fairly big fan of uh, shooting uh, 4K, uh, but I tend to master that at 2K. Um, you've said here that, uh, and I think it's a valid point, that uh, in res- 
regards to uh, uh, Avatar that it was shot on a HD and was then obviously cut down. There obviously has been a bunch of stuff that's shot on 1920 by 1080. But um, do you not feel that there's some merit in shooting a higher resolution than your output medium? I, I absolutely do. Um, and there are a couple nuanced points here that I, I'd love to make. W- one is that I really admire Red for their... I, I think Red have hit a really cool sweet spot in terms of the 4K compressed originals that the cameras make. Um, because 4K... I, I describe the situations where 4K doesn't matter, right? Movies move, they have tons of motion blur, they're rarely perfectly in focus, da-da-da-da. Um, but when you do have that one wide Lawrence of Arabia master shot and you have a lone figure walking in the desert and your eye is starved for detail, it, it, it's a bummer. You, that is when you really do want all your pixels to be cut in half. Um, and what what's genius about the red digital negative is that it's basically selective 4K. You know, it's wavelet compressed, and wavelet compression is different than the kind of JPEG artifacts that we're accustomed to seeing in uh, in other compressed uh, material in that it degrades by softening instead of degrading by getting blocky. And so effect- effectively, the red one is, an, is a w- sh- shooting to red raw is a selectively 4K camera. It's 4K where the codec notices that there's detail worth preserving, and it's 2K or even less where the wavelets find no detail worth preserving. And and that's genius. So it's a great originating format. But then when you talk about preserving that 4K resolution throughout post, um, you aren't able to keep it in that artfully compressed format that it originated. So suddenly you have to make some big decisions about file sizes and fluidity of working with the material versus how much that extra little bit of detail matters to you. And that's where I think uh, people need to make their own decisions. But for me, um, you know, I, I, at th- that's where the, the compromises start to run in favor of working at a lower resolution. I'd rather work more fluidly with, uh, with, with 2K material than, than trudge through um, 4K material. Because the truth is, as you increase, as you go from 2 to 4K, you've quadrupled the data impact for maybe a tiny little bit of uh, improved quality of the image. And, and as you increase the resolution, the 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 footprint and the and all of the associated kind of bogging down of the workflow increases exponentially but the quality asymptotically approach, approaches what the human eye can see which for yeah, many but I of see, us I'm going to call you on that one because I would say that it's not about uh, just about image quality because I think you're negating the fact that people will do a lot for convenience and convenience here translates into the ability to reframe uh yeah absolutely and again that convenience is only uh as valid as your willingness to master at a lower resolution because i mean i've i've often cropped uh stills and i've often cropped red footage and i've not often cropped if ever uh 1920 by 1080 out of a 7d yeah i've had my ass saved by having a wide and a tight already automatically always in the one shot 
So I do think there so. is there is something other than just image quality as to why down the track in post you would care about having it originated in 4K. Well, no, you're, 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 you're preaching to the converted here because, again, it doesn't mas- matter to me to master it 4K. So yeah. shooting at 4K means that I have this huge leeway because I'm going to choose to exercise that resolution not to achieve some sort of immaculate theatrical presentation that yes. only but I'm just 1% saying that you were saying that it was like, like it's limiting to a bit when you're shooting in 4K. I got the, or maybe you didn't say this, but I heard that you, or I understood you were well, saying Jim, I think, talks, Jim Jannard, I think, talks about 4K in a slightly different way than you do. You talk about it in terms of providing post-flexibility, but he talks about it in terms of audiences want this extra sharp movie watching experience. Though, look, true. And, and that's true. But I also, but well, we I want take, better than what we've got. I, I like the fact in, that he's out there pushing things forward. I sat in Batman and it, in IMAX, and it went from the 35 blow-up to the IMAX-originated footage, and the audience gasped and, if not applauded, they certainly, you know, noticeably in awe of what was an otherwise really ordinary shot when it first went to the uh, to the IMAX res. And I, I walked out of that cinema stunned at how much I could tell the difference between the IMAX stuff shot in when he was, you know raiding Tokyo or Japan or wherever, China or wherever he was and mm-hmm. not and that opening sequence with um, the bank robbery I, I think uh, that audiences you know. want you know don't necessarily aren't there sort of picketing with their pitchforks and their torches out the front of cinemas wanting 4K but we certainly want better presentation we certainly want better resolution and are sick of paying me personally sick of paying for really shitty prints and prisons you know so I I for one I mean given you know with all the good and bad of of red I love the fact that they're out there that they're pushing people forward they're waking people up making not necessarily future proofing you can never future proof but you know at least future protecting a lot of a lot well, of a lot of footage well, but let's not his, start his, that again i, I, I don't i don't dis- disagree with anything no, we're not saying this is saying, what you're but, saying but the, the you know I, I saw um uh toy story 3 digitally projected at pixar uh on a 2k projector and it looked as good as i could possibly imagine a movie ever looking i mean it was just absolutely uh, the most spectacular cinematic experience i've had in recent memory yeah. was it in stereo for, for all was? kinds of reasons uh, it was in eye popping 2d right. and um and i was totally immersed um but uh, the the thing is that that is a perfect theater perfectly manned by a very talented projectionist <laughs> who cares yeah and sure it's, yeah, and, and and we don't have that you know as yeah. soon as you as soon as you get all the digital theaters in the world projecting 4K all that happens is that that pimply faced teenager who's supposed to be focusing it is even more derelict in his duty for not doing so so <laughs> it, it, i um i think that we could uh i i agree that we we should strive for better presentation but if you're in los angeles and you go check out a movie at the arc light you see pretty amazing presentation that reminds you of how good it can be when the status quo is just executed really well yeah and and jim can you know advocate 4k all he wants but uh, it's it, it poorly projected 4k is going to be worse than well projected 2k yeah can we jump to the next one? Because I think we'll have no argument. We, I think we're all in agreement with your next point, which is really we don't need to pick at cinemas to go to 60 frames a second or, you know, 50 hertz, 60 hertz. Yeah. In fact, quite the opposite. We need to pick at the, 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 the TV manufacturers to stop uh, marketing their TVs in stores by showing off their 
horrible ability to take the movies that you've grown up loving and make them look like daytime soap operas by at, but with this 120 hertz uh, motion smoothing crap it's just it's yeah. just just stick to movie uh, reviews and thanks very much yeah it's i you know yeah i, I we, we love his music reviews we just don't agree with this particular point which is that we should up the frame rate completely and he just has no concept of what the consequence of it would be. I mean, uh, it, was, it was literally in the room with him where I saw a, uh, a trailer that, you know, this was in the early days of shooting HD for, for indie cinema, and there was no 24P yet. And the, these guys didn't know what the hell they were doing, but they had gone and shot a trailer with, with an HD camera at, at 60i, and we, they showed the trailer. And everyone kind of shuffled nervously in their chairs because it just looked like a soap opera and it looked terrible and they said yeah we didn't like the way it looked so you know what we did we went over to e-film and we just shot it out to film and somehow the magic of film <laughs> made it look so much nicer and here it is and they showed it on the same tv yeah you know the same hd presentation but now it's got three two pull down and whatever kind of uh oh. frame rate conversion and they were they, everyone was all oh yeah see what what happened is that film came along and sprinkled magical fairy dust on it and i sat there and thought no, what happened is that eFilm converted this to 24 frames, and, and it, now it looks like film. And, and, and eFilm and, is very good at that kind of stuff. And eFilm is very good at that kind of stuff. And, and honestly, that was one of the moments where I hatched my plan to invent a product that would later become known as Magic Bullet. Uh, because I figured, hey, people would buy this, this a, a software program that just converts, that, that just takes... Th- that soap opera that we just saw and turns it into this movie trailer that we just saw. Was that the stuff shot by Alan DeVoe? Uh, it was a different presentation that was sh- shot by Alan Davio. He, he, he did a similar uh, presentation um, where he kind of took a video camera and a, and a film camera and matched as many of their characteristics as he could. They even uh, telecined it all together so that the colors matched very well and ultimately what you were then just seeing was a slight difference in depth of field characteristics it was a wide shot so there wasn't a huge opportunity for there to be a big difference and then and then just a difference in cadence and the audience saw the 60 hertz version and they booed and then they saw the 24 version and they cheered and since all the other differences between the formats had pretty much been leveled out what they were really booing and cheering was just frame rates Yeah, and you know Alan's such a great DIP. I mean, I have enormous respect for his just, work, so I would have uh, seen that. He, he, I mean, and to his credit, you know, someone with the chops that he has, there, he had no reason to uh, throw himself, uh, you know, into the fray like he did, but he, he was really one of the early adopters and early, early you know, guys who was curious about the stuff. We, uh, one of the first projects we did uh, at the orphanage was a, a short film that, that, uh, that he DP'd for, for a, a woman who used to be a camera assistant for him. And, uh, and we, uh, one of the ways that we dealt with the problem of shooting on standard definition DV uh, for an eventual film out was that we shot with a PAL uh, DVX100 um, so that we could, or no, VX1000, sorry, so that we could uh, at least have 25 frames per second. And that, that became our, uh, our way of getting the best out of standard def from, from that day forward. All right, well, let's wow. go to our second last one where you know better than a guy who's made the two <laughs> biggest grossing films of all time uh, as his last two back-to-back films. So do you want to explain yeah. to me why you think you know better than Mr. Cameron? <laughs> uh, yes, I do. I will explain exactly that. Um, I'm, I'm, I've met Jim a couple times. The most recent time was on the set of Avatar, and um, 
our mutual friend David Strapinis introduced me again to Jim and said, this is Stu, and he thinks 3D is a gimmick. And I, <laughs> oh, that's I, a good way to be introduced to it. Yeah, it, was, Thanks, it was basically David throwing me under a big bus named Jim Cameron. And, um, and, and, and Jim said, well, if that's true, then, then, you know, then, uh, then I'm, I'm the ultimate fool because I've bet everything on the 3D of this movie. And, and, um, and then he had to go. <laughs> and, then, and 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 moments thereafter i thought of the perfect response uh as is so often the case when you're kind of slow like me which was that well no that would only be true if you thought the 3d was the only reason people are going to be interested in going to see this movie and of course it's not you know uh avatar is 3d but it's also so many other things and what's hard about avatar is that avatar is a groundbreaking work in the way that so many of of Cameron's films are. Um, he's not obviously not satisfied unless he is challenging himself, which gets to a point that we'll talk about when we get to me later. But, um, uh, and he, so you know, he you can't draw any conclusions about 3D or motion capture or anything from Avatar because. Because wow, you can draw some. It didn't fail, Avatar. Avatar was not let down dramatically by its 3D. That's a conclusion. And that, I that, draw. And that by the way, is exactly the way I described it to friends who asked my impression after I saw Avatar. I said, well, it, I, I, he confirmed my suspicion that Jim Cameron will be among the first filmmakers to not allow 3D to ruin his movie. Um, I. But but sure you're right it didn't know it all added up I mean I'm not even going to say that 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 Avatar was better in 2D it all added up it all added up to a cool unique experience and and unique is the operative word there I he he made something that no one else has made and 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 you can't just pull one ingredient out of it and say well we will have similar successes if we do performance yeah, capture yeah that's, we, that's the problem. I think or, it was yeah, David I think it was David Spinner who said to me that at the beginning of Avatar he came on set and actually said to everybody he said look we're not here to make a film we're here to make the Super Bowl of, I'm paraphrasing we're making the Super Bowl of films so, you know yeah. you need to bring your A game because this is it this is the cutting edge this is the peak we are going not for just a film we're going for like, you know a great film and yeah. and if you think of that analogy and I'm not really a big sports analogy guy but if you think of that analogy with a you know, Super Bowl football team, there are so many aspects that make that team a success. And it would be pretty much the same as saying, we got the same colored jerseys and uh, use the same brand of, <laughs> yeah, of that's, football. Yeah, that's and, pretty much how Hollywood's working, yeah. And, you know, we're going to replicate the success of somebody that won the Super Bowl. And even to, um, to the point that it, it's a very collaborative effort with the actors, the, the, um, to start, the editors, the sound guys, there are so many people that are collaborating in much the same way a sporting team is. Um, and you're right, they all just came together and there's just no doubt about it that it worked. I just, I, I just think, um, I think you're right, he challenges. I also think that it's, there's just nothing wrong with somebody, you know, championing something. It doesn't have to be everything, though. So I'm, I'm all for Jim Cameron doing his stuff, but I, I tend to fall with you, Stu. I mean, I really don't think that 3D is the right solution for everything. And there are certain types of stories, especially something told in the first-person narrative, in much the way Avatar was the experience of a person going into an alien culture that lends yeah. itself to that style of filmmaking. Yeah. Um, a lot of other filmmaking just wouldn't have been as good in, in stereo. Make a 3D yeah, film yeah, that's going to work a, as 2D. You, you could even go so far as to suggest that Cameron, uh, you know, intentionally crafted a lead character 
who was a bit of a blank slate in that kind of Forrest Gump or kind of, uh, you know, uh, Twilight kind of a way. A, 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 a main character who doesn't really have, Did like, Stu a crucial... Did actually mention the tea show on our show? Did you really do that? <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought he was a friend. <laughs> Sorry, go on. The... Uh, the, the result being that you can pretty much inhabit Jake Scully's experience because there's nothing about him that's so frightfully unique as to make you think that you couldn't identify with him yeah, or that you would respond to the world. And yeah, exactly. He's very, he's very much a blank slate, which means that you can very much see the world through his eyes and, and you put on the glasses and you're doing just that. So, so when a filmmaker like Jim Cameron takes a holistic look at uh, an, a, a work of entertainment like this and crafts the screenplay from from square one to 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 be oh. tuned to this unique cinematic experience you're going to have that that's that's fine i mean i i have no complaints about any of that uh, my, so uh, my my only my you know my only uh, if if i were ever allowed to con- continue my conversation with jim cameron <laughs> my only point would be that um that he's never needed that that he has gotten me absolutely as emotionally involved in in movies as anyone has ever using good old fashioned movie making technology uh for for years for you know d- dating back to the the sort of seminal years of when I was learning how movies affected me you mm. know? He's 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 as good as they get, and he doesn't need any any new tricks. Uh, even though he's constantly inventing uh, new tricks, as the two D version of Avatar proves, I guess you can still quite happily watch that and still get a great movie out of it, and still be immersed. Oh, I mean, you know, Cameron's one of the greatest filmmakers. Of but I'm time. glad he did three D. I just, I thought that was utterly like filmmaking. You know, the, yeah, the the, the danger point. to us as the audience is just that, like the Matrix. You know, the Matrix did. Uh, a lot of really great stuff that we then had to suffer through 10 years of imitations of. You know? But, you know, I think this all builds well to our last um, fetishist. Mm. Um, because <laughs> the thing is, many of the things we talked about are not in of themselves a problem. It's, uh, perhaps with the exception of the first one, it's all about a technique normally that you want to have story-related, story-based, and not just the end in itself. You don't want 3D as the end in itself. You don't want shallow depth of focus as the end in itself. You don't want to yeah. move the camera without having any reason to do it. You don't want to you know, have complicated gear if there's no reason that you couldn't have done it with a better framing and a locked-off position kind of thing. Uh, which gets us, I think, to your last point about accessibility. Um, and what I took out of that was the really, you know, get off your butt and try and make somethingness of it because you now can. Um, is that a fair paraphrasing? Uh, I, I think so, and I... I I am careful to not um, – I mean, I think that's the way folks reading it took it, and I think that that's, that's good. Um, I am not claiming that anyone else has the same problem I have, which is that I occasionally get just fixated on um, the uh, – on trying to make the filmmaking, filmmaking experience fluid, you know? I, I – uh, there, there is a grab and go kind of model of filmmaking that I don't like because it doesn't produce good results, and yet I love that process. I love the thought that I can snap off a shot and have moved to a new position before anyone has even noticed. Because yeah. then I feel like I, as a filmmaker, have the opportunity to uh, protect myself against not knowing what the hell I'm doing. Um, so the the more nimble I am and the lighter weight my gear and the the cleverer it is, you know, the less 
I have to be held accountable for uh, maybe having a slightly imperfect plan going into a shoot day or whatever. Yeah, um, you want the gear to get out of your way. Yeah, and I and I want the gear to um, kind of you know magically transform from a tripod to a steadicam to a techno crane at the push of a button. You know, because then the commitment to executing that techno crane shot isn't the 45 minute wait that it's going to take to move the camera body up there you know yeah. um and so so it's a it's a laziness thing honestly is what it is for me and and uh um uh, that that's what i'm trying to call myself out on the table for and i don't know if anyone actually cares but maybe there are some other people out there who every once in a while find themselves trying to make the filmmaking process easier and they just really only need to scroll up the page to look at that picture of Jim Cameron there with that ridiculous pace rig on his shoulder. The guy who has spent his career doing absolutely nothing but making the filmmaking process more difficult for himself and he's been rewarded quite handsomely for it. Um, So he's he's my inspiration in, in so many ways but that is principally the way in which he's my inspiration is that he's always... He's not happy unless he, 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 he probably feels like he can't make his best creative decisions unless he really feels like the wolves are nipping at his heels. And so he'll put them, himself in that position. Whereas other filmmakers, when they re- reach his status, start trying to figure out ways to make the filmmaking process easier on themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think, f- for my part at least, I feel like I see their films suffer when they're, when they're able to do that. I think there's a couple of things about that struggle. I think, firstly, the struggle is in some people's world, healthy. I mean, I find the struggle healthy, I find. But also Absolutely. I find that there is something that we've done, we've had the luxury of doing. We, we often are on productions and it's, you know, killer schedules and you're trying to get through the shots. But occasionally um, I've designed a shoot, and we did one a little while ago, where I said, look, I'm going to do this where we've got one setup, one location, there's two cameras, but we're going to, that's it. We could get two whole things in a day, but we're going to get one because I want to have time to craft these shots. And I yeah. don't want to be in a situation where we're just running and gunning it yeah. because I actually want to take time to craft it. And quite frankly, I don't want to be trying to get brownie points because we knocked it off without a permit, done, you know, guerrilla style. And uh, isn't it funny how we managed to get this? And it was done hmm. with three guys and a chewing gum. No, I said, let's get a proper grip. Let's get a proper setup and let's properly light it and let's properly do it and not push ourselves to anything other than to give the actors an environment they can actually act in as opposed to being kind of moving props. And uh, in a sense, I think this is what I'm picking up on, is that's kind of a little frightening in a sense because all your excuses go away. Like you can't now look at that mm-hmm. and say, well, yeah, but dot, dot, dot. Mm. Because there were yeah. no but dot, dot, dots. There was whether I could get the actors to... Uh, explore the material and find ways at coming at it that had some actual honesty about it or not i couldn't that's another reason why exactly why you you want to get the camera out of out of your own way you want to be able to be free to do that sort of stuff and not have a 45 minute technocrane re-rig from steadicam to this and that you want to be able to you know you want to be able to cover it all without having to act as to wait for the you know and then get back in and out of character you want to i think it's it's wrong to misinterpret Stu's comments if i can do this Stu for you speaking on behalf it's not that i want to be able to shoot with a minimum of crew with no lights 
with 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 you know and just knock it out it's more like well now i can focus on some other things because as you say jace i haven't had to stop everything for the reload stop everything for exactly. the fact that we've got a huge amount of stuff to move this camera and even just moving it a foot is going to be a big exercise and don't worry about it because yeah, it's exactly why i will not be embarrassed about line skipping and all the rest of the stuff well, well, well t- take the effort that you've saved by making your camera smaller and turn it into something that improves the audience's experience. Yeah. You know, uh, we we've made our lives easier now. The cameras, rigs have gotten smaller. Maybe even the crews have gotten slightly smaller. Um, so, what do you do with that? Do you now say, "Wow, filmmaking got easier, and the results are kind of the same"? Or do you say, "Wow, well, hey, this this setup didn't take as long to uh, to grip into place." So I'm going to take a little bit longer to look through the viewfinder and really make that shot sing. That That is a hard transition for people to make if you're used to the run-and-gun approach. The first time you're sitting... Uh, at you know at your, at your monitor with your your health your headphones on and your script supervisor sitting next to you and you're doing it for real professional style and and they've told you well you know what you the movie star isn't going to be ready for another 20 minutes well now you've got 20 minutes to make the shot better yeah. how do you spend it you know yeah. and and uh, it's a it's a it's an exercise that you can create for your, yourself if you make that decision to focus on quantity over quality maybe or quality over quantity yeah use the gains for the benefit of film not to get down to the pub early yeah because yeah, absolutely. And, and it is um it is i think can be misinterpreted that the it's all about stick it to the man and it's all about like what i managed to do with with no stuff and i've often said the same thing about visual effects like, well, my wife doesn't care how clever i was or wasn't doing it she just you know with the shot sucks and she yeah. can't really even articulate why it would or wouldn't suck. She just doesn't, didn't look very good, <laughs> you know. And it's like, yeah, of course it doesn't. Um, and I think I, I, I've said this definitely on this podcast before. I don't know if I said it used to, but I spoke to Dean Semler at uh, the uh, an ACS thing, and Dean's obviously a really good cinematographer. And they worked digitally. I think the first thing was Apocalypto, but um, and I asked him what I thought about digital, and his comment so surprised me that I keep on quoting it. He didn't come back with me over dynamic range or anything else today. He said, oh, it's great because we don't have to stop and interrupt the actors with reloads. And it, you know, yeah. his entire reason for wanting digital is that it gave the actors a better environment to act in. Not your normal so DP response, that is it? to be the primary reason why I liked digital. And he's continued to be a fan of it. He's shot uh, most of his stuff digital. He must, you know, pass that uh, on. But it, it, was, it was just so, for a cinematographer of his calibre, we could clearly run circles around me before he's even woken up in the morning in terms of knowledge of filmmaking it was just benefiting the actors that was his number one motivating reason why this thought this was good and uh yeah. and i just thought you know it's so a couple of those moments when somebody says i'm you go, well, that is exactly what it's about that is exactly what it's about it's like getting the actors in an environment they can give a bit of performance and i just wish that um the whole reason we have this podcast and why i like red is for all that benefit and that's exactly yeah. to Stu's point that you know yeah, I mean, I, I've I've definitely seen that both ways, and I, 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 you know, the filmmaker I think of in those terms is Robert Rodriguez, who who really it's it's easy to forget this looking back now, but when he um, put uh, Sin City together, that was one of the big draws uh, to the actors, you know, because he got some amazing actors yeah. in that movie. It's a forty-two million dollar movie, and he's got. Uh, Bruce Willis, whose salary tends to be about half that, you know, <laughs> and, and but 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 he said, you know, you're only going to be there for ten days, and um, you're going to get to spend that whole time acting, and that was enough, 
you know uh it's a pretty powerful thing to be able to tell an actor and and uh so i i he, other other folks have discovered that that uh the convenience of these things uh th- there are ways to actually translate it into a, a better experience uh f- for the audience something that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to see uh not just uh, the same old same old but uh may- w- with a little bit less out of pocket on, on on your part or or maybe just a f- fewer anvil cases in the truck i mean this film i saw last night farewell had a shot where she's lying on a chair and she just looks up at the trees and it's one of those classic french cinema arty shots you know like the the light is coming through the dappled trees. It's out of focus. There's just gorgeous cinematography and stuff. But I loved that film because I was just on the edge of my seat as to what was going to happen in the plot. And, you know, and I was, I, I cared about the actors because they gave me believable performances that made me care about the actors. And I'm, and I'm sorry, but we just don't spend enough time, I don't think, on getting great performances out of actors as mm. one of the very important yeah. skills of a DOP. I, I completely agree, and I think there's another one too. I think um, just just in terms of talking about our temptations to try to make our lives easier, the other thing that I notice a lot, uh, folks experimenting with this stuff, is that they um, they'll they'll go shoot a bunch of stuff and pop it up on Vimeo right away and uh, and start asking for people to give comments on it, and the very first thing that you can tell is that the the editing has not been given uh, due attention, and and you'll you'll oftentimes see. Well, this is all we had time to do. Well, wait a minute. I'm sorry. Did you have a deadline or what was the? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, there is no prize for the film that t- took the least amount of time to edit. And the one thing that you, the one leg up that you have when you have no budget and no crew, is that you have all the time in the world. Nobody cares yeah. when you put that thing on Vimeo. So so craft it. You know. Uh, spend some real time on it and and make it as good as you can make it because y- no one you're the one deciding when to stop and no one is wrestling it out of your hands um, and 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 that's really true kind of at the setup level as well when you are doing a, a run and gun shoot there's no one is saying let's move on but you mm. and when you when you're sitting in that editing room and you're wishing you had that shot you've got no one to blame but yourself you know I, I see this all the time. These people shooting these little shorts, and they're like, "Yeah, we ran out of light." It's like, did you also run out of days? You yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember a point in your book that I, I often quote, where you say, "You know, I, uh, if you have to do a green screen here, are you sure you couldn't just drive down the road and go to a different location and get that shot without needing to key it?" I mean, could you not just yeah. like put the time and effort to come back tomorrow when the light is better? Or I think there was another example you used about picking up uh, shots when you just happen to see, uh, you know, fire trucks or something and being able to take advantage of that. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I, I tried to sum that up with the line that, uh, you know, uh, f- film is kind of a machine that tr- tr- that takes you, and you, you, this is something you were saying earlier, Mike, that it, it transforms your efforts into a, an audience experience. And so the the harder you try, the more work you put into it, that really does get saved forever on that little data card and and put out there in the world so that tiny little bit of extra effort that you put into the process um is you know uh becomes a part of that permanent archive and uh so it's worth it yeah i mean we've spoken a lot about cameron but the man hasn't made many films just that every one of them has been worth the wait um i don't think we'd love him more as a filmmaker if he'd made six crappy ones in the middle um, but you know, exactly. we wouldn't have applauded him for like a for effort for you know cranking them out. <laughs> yeah. 
Yep. Yeah, try and pick a bad or try and pick your favourite Cameron film. It's a, oh, it's a killer. It's a toughie. Okay, well, yep. Sue, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us and uh, letting us beat you up a little bit on your um, blatant attempt to uh, drive uh, hits to your website by quoting every famous um, uh, internet <laughs> filmmaker. Go on there, Stu. You. Where do yeah. people find you or... or uh, <laughs> this uh, this or website, t- which we've been talking about all, all uh, day, yeah, is... Uh, that would be uh, prolast.com. Uh, and you can find me at uh, 5TU on Twitter. Yes, and uh, Prolost as in uh, the opposite of profound. But I think you actually were pretty profound with this post, and it's obviously hit a chord. There's about 70,000 people that have commented saying you're a, you're a pagan god. So um, uh, thank you so much <laughs> for being on the show. We do appreciate it. Thanks, man. Always a pleasure, guys. Thank you. See ya. Bye. So I still – actually, I was looking at it today. Your, you did a course with uh, Stu on DSLRs. I, I still keep going back to it and referring to it. It's – Oh, really? Utterly, utterly fantastic, because I was just looking at my um, little Joby Gorillapod thing there that you've given back to me. It's, uh, I remember him using it on the, on the shoot. It's, yeah. It's, Actually, uh, a friend of Stu, somebody that I know Stu uh, respects a lot, is doing the new course on that, which is just starting over at FXPH now, which is um, Tyler, who's... Uh, yeah, yeah. Captain in uh, of course. Well, I'm incredibly jealous about this. Actually, this is so, awesome. So Tyler, myself, John Montgomery are heading over next week to Yellowstone, where we'll be filming um, a new digital SLR course, uh, which will no doubt cover many of the aspects that we've just uh, discussed <laughs> in that uh, podcast. But that'll be uh, a full ten-week uh, intensive course discussing everything really about um, SLR production in the realm of video. So it's not yeah, you know, it's not SLRs just time lapse. It's not just yeah, yeah but we're not doing like, uh, you know, how to do portrait photography. We're doing video, SLR, filmmaking. And the thing, of course, Stu's course, which was just fabulously popular, was in urban Japan in a very much uh, can we film without being busted kind of vibe because yeah. it was crowded. Uh, it was culturally amazing, great things to film, but it was, you know, just super urban, dense whatever and at the time there was still so much it was still such a fresh new thing you know there was still so much people didn't know about how to do how to grade stuff how to transcode stuff frame rates and it was all still a bit we just don't have the the range, yeah, I mean, range the, um, of facilities that are hands and all rig there uh, but rigs and and those sort of add-ons have just gone through the roof since that and also you know we didn't even have 24p on the 5d yeah um yeah so when we decided to make the new course um Stu's you know, um, being terrific and uh, terribly supportive. But we wanted to go with Tyler because he uh, set up combat camera shooting with uh, SLRs for the Army in, let's face it, some of the most rugged and uh, difficult terrain and conditions in the world. And, of course, the complete opposite of shooting in Japan with a lovely, uh, comfortable kind of uh, environment is to go exterior, on location, uh, well away from the comforts of a major city. And we decided, therefore, to do exterior stuff that would be wildlife, uh, shooting in a much more, um, uh, I guess, rugged environment. Now, it's obviously nowhere near the kind of conditions you get in Afghanistan or Iraq. We don't begin to pretend that it is. But then most people aren't going to be shooting in those conditions. But if you were going on location, and, of course, you've just done that um, extensively with your work uh, Mm. for your recent campaign... Mm. You know, we thought, well, what are the issues? Like, what should you take with you? Uh, what are the differences with the lenses? How do you process that m- media? What are our options for um, doing really interesting rigs and stuff? Because you can take stuff, as we will, in uh, four-wheel drives. And it's not like you're going, you know, through the Himalayas or something. But by the same token, you've not got the sort of luxuries. If you don't have a, 
I don't know, a Lexar card reader, you can't pop in and, and grab one. You're not on the net. Where in Japan, literally, we'd turn around, there'd be like a camera store. I mean, <laughs> 10 seconds from where we were standing at almost yeah. any moment. So obviously, because Tyler's been spending a lot of time working out what kits the guys should take into battle, which is essentially, you know... I don't mean to little war, of course, but filmmaking, something can be sometimes not far off. Getting those, uh, you know, working out what you absolutely need to take and what you can live without is is, is what he's uh, been, been these, yeah, question, and these questions he's been dealing with. I mean, in, in a sense, if you can film in a war zone, you can film anywhere, right? And they were not only doing the, uh, what you might call, uh, frontline, very... Um, minimal kits type stuff, but mm. they were also doing the more uh, elaborate kits that they would have for situations where they had more control. So, look, I mean, obviously the guy's got enormous cred in shooting in the field, and this is what we're doing. We're shooting in the field. The field just happens to be Yellowstone National yes, Park, and, uh, <laughs> and it is a wonderful environment. Um, and also, we did a lot of other things that are different. Like, last time we were shooting without permits, it was very much like, what could you get away with? This time, we've approached the National Park. We've we're showing how to do the permits. Yeah, and, you know, it's cool. a really rewarding experience. The yeah. National Park has really come on board. They're going to have somebody uh, advising us on good locations, times of day, giving us permission to go places and film without anyone in attendance with us, but also... I think you're going to have a fantastic time. It is so yeah. rewarding. I mean, my, my little sort of sea pool thing I kept crapping on about, but I can't tell you how rewarding it is to just, you know, just get out there and just create something out of nothing. It's just so much fun and it's a real sort of undoing of all the, the stuff we do for you know for a crust it's yeah uh, and we've got we've got some really interesting rigs to film with we've got a really nice um car mount rig that i'm looking forward to uh, yeah cool. uh working with both because we want to shoot into the car but also we're going to try and do some uh insane time lapse from the car um the theory being that imagine if you drove really slowly but shot at a slow frame rate per second, then once you play it back normal speed, it would feel like you were travelling on a normal speed along with the car. If you're travelling in a good car with good suspension on a good freeway, which is, you know, it's a good highway uh, with drive laps. Stuff. Well, yeah, and then what happens, of course, is that the nature outside the window is running fast. So clouds are hurling by and mm. swirling and stuff in the way they normally wouldn't. But, of course, it looks like a normal shot out of a normal car. Um, so there's some stuff like that we're going to be doing. And, uh, but there's a ton of new tech in terms of uh, stabilizing software, software for processing stuff, even stuff from Red Giant on uh, batch processing of 5D files, that kind of stuff. Cool. So there'll be back-end stuff as well oh, once, yeah. you, once you get back, working totally. with the footage. Awesome. Um, and, you know, it is uh, – I'm sorry. It, it is just gorgeous you in just Yellowstone. absolutely just have to get this course. It's uh, – I don't mean turning turning into an ad now, but well, man, I, be, I tell but... you, I've had so much. Uh, even though, even though I know exactly what what's in every one of those episodes of the last, you know, the last of Stu's course, course, I still then go back and revisit it. Even if I don't then again learn something, it's just interesting to to go back and um, just for fun. And it sounds like there's going to be a ton more uh, to learn. Yeah, this next course. And, and uh, Stu is a huge fan of uh, of Tyler's. In fact, he uh, he jokingly um, referred to what uh, a fan of of his he is. And so, you know, it's all good. There's um, uh, it's all just great working with such great filmmakers. You know, I'm quite frankly just spoilt rotten. I mean, I get to work with all these great filmmakers, and I learn so much from them. And there's rarely a course like this that I don't just kind of. I mean, I honestly have been like a kid in a candy store waiting to get to go on this. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Yep. Okay. Shut up now. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Enjoy. So, uh, now you have an interview for us. Um, uh, it's I, a pick-up from last week, right? Uh, it is a pick-up from last uh, week. Well, no, actually. No, I've got, an, I've got another interview instead now. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, speaking to Kyle from One Day on Earth, which is a, uh, essentially 
uh, something I've I foolishly signed up for, uh, which is a um, uh, essentially if you you know the uh, the um, day in the life of book series, right? Right. So this is essentially the Vimeo or kind of moving picture version of this, except oh, rather than just a day in life of Australia or whatever mm-hmm. America, this is this is the world. So you're, you're basically going to document the world. It's on the tenth of the tenth of the tenth. Obviously, Kyle will go through it. Um, he's the creative director for One Day on Earth, and uh, he'll take us through it. But uh, this is essentially doc- helping document the world story on tenth, tenth, tenth. Uh, and what then they go ahead and do with that footage. Brilliant. Okay, well, I'm talking to One Day on Earth Project Director, Kyle Ruddick. Uh, thanks for taking the time, Kyle. Oh, thank you so much. I think what appeals to me about this project is it reminds me of Rick Smolin's Day in the Life of series, photographic series book, if you haven't seen them, where dozens of photographers were dispatched to a specific city around the world. I guess this is sort of a... The same kind of theory, but on a much larger scale. Yeah, I, I would hope so. I mean, this is the, uh, I guess, the modern equivalent with video and film. It's funny, I, I, ha- I had heard of those books a long time ago, and then I started working on this project, and they were referred to me, and I was like, oh, this is great. More recently, uh, I was in New York, and I met this professor at Rutgers University there in Russian history, and there was actually a book in the 30s put out by Russians um, doing a very similar really? thing with photo photojournalism, and um, and they also actually made a film at some point there too. But it was all it was like a day in Russia, and uh, um, there, so there's there's cer- certainly an attempt to take us down this road. I think again and again, and uh, you know the hope is here is that because we have a little bit better technology, that it's more accessible to more people and. And uh, that we'll get a little deeper yet into um, what we can find out about ourselves, I guess. Yeah, that's the hope of the project, really. So sticking with the book analogy, give us the Regis Digest version, I guess, of the One Day on Earth concept. Okay. It's definitely more than just making a film. So the Reader's Digest version would be that um, on October 10th, 2010, this year, um, in every country in the world, we'll have participants filming during the same 24-hour period. Um, Whatever they choose, uh, whatever matters to them or inspires them, um, it's really their representation in the world's video time capsule. And uh, in turn, that'll create an online community where we can share our results together and comment and look at each other's work. And from that, we will also be creating a feature-length film. You know, it's 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 different than a um, a film competition. There's tons of contests out there. This is this is something where we're really pushing for people to do this for themselves from the heart. You know, do it because you have something to share. I mean, as we record here in July, you already have over two and a half thousand people participating. So obviously, yes, the question is, how will all those people possibly fit into one documentary? <laughs> That's a great question. It's it's not a it's not a simple answer and. Um, we have some big charts on the wall here. You know, based on what everyone does, um, they're going to, when you upload and share, you're, you're giving us information topically as well as, you know, IP address and all the things that sort of come along with being part of a social network. So the challenge is, is that no one's going to be happy with a substandard product out of this thing. So there has to be an evaluation of what, what is, uh, you know, obviously the highest quality, but also sort of how do we represent the entire world in a day, and there's some very exciting things that we we're going to start. To, we're already starting to see 
where people are kind of um, would fit into a montage per se, um, you know, people are filming their weddings. Obviously, to the people getting married is a beautiful event, but to the rest of us is typically mundane. But the result of seeing 50 weddings in 50 completely different cultures over a minute-long period is a, a different sort of exposure to daily life that I think is going to be very exciting. Yeah. Anyways, I don't know if that's a good answer. <laughs> Was so, that a good answer? Sure. It, should we rewind <laughs> <that> again? <laughs> well, it, it's it's clear that there's no real um, guidelines, I suppose, of what people should shoot. It has to be something, I guess, to that appeals to them. It has to be something that makes you want to get up, get up in the morning, and do it. You know, along those lines, we have a lot of um, real, real um, commercial directors and, and cinematographers participating in the project in a way that I think it's a little bit um, uh, outside of their typical daily job. And that's really interesting to see that they're, they're using it like a filmmaking holiday. You know, the, the, <laughs> this, this is something... I mean, we, yeah. Yesterday, we had the, uh, the director of Greece sign up for the project, actually. You know, and he, you know they're not a, not a typical documentary filmmaker, but he has a documentary project he's doing. And, you know, it's like, you know, it's like this world of... of, of uh, I'm really going to be interested what the, you know, he does for us. You know, it's going to be... Um, an interesting thing for sure so there's no real guidelines then really on what people are shooting or what they're shooting on what about length duration well right now i would suggest to people to think in terms of like no more than 10 minutes um of uh selects or an edited piece you know that's a lot now the copyright issues obviously you're not doing this to make money but uh what are the uh guidelines for what you submit do you still own it I, absolutely. Um, the, the way the way that we want to do this is that we will be, you know, obviously uh, getting a license to to post your content and also use it within a film. Otherwise, we can distribute a film. Um, but uh, ultimately, everyone retains um, full rights to use the footage for whatever purpose they they see fit outside of the project. We definitely don't want people to devalue their work out of this. Um, I think that the, the notion is is to you know find a way to make your work more valuable if possible. So, what's the timeline of the project once ten 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 rolls around? Uh, the timeline is that we would we're we're, we're uh, pushing to have a worldwide premiere on eleven 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 for a film, and then uh, the archive will build itself dynamically. Um, essentially as um, people upload. So based on topic and also geolocation, uh, people will be able to browse the original content um, that was uh, created for the project so that everybody who participates is really on the website and categorized and sort of uh, visible based on what they actually did. Now, obviously, there's no real um, way of checking this, of course, but we just hope that people will stay true to the spirit of the project and actually only film on 10, 10, 10. Right. Well, I can tell you that we will have all the weather data from NASA, including uh, satellite <laughs> pictures. So if, you're, if, you're, uh, if it's raining for some reason where you said you were and it wasn't, we'll know. Um, we also are going to make sure that people, um, you know, they're going to have to digitally sign with our the licensing agreement that they did do this on ten 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 because ethically I think that the you know the the spirit of the project is that we're doing this all in one day. That's kind of it's kind of cheating everyone else. And um obviously if we found out someone was cheating we would, you know, basically remove yeah. their content and yeah. uh ask them not to show up again. <laughs> yeah. So uh, look uh Kyle, where can people find out more and sign up? 
They can find out more at www.onedayonearth.org. Um, all words. Um, oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, if you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at twitter.com slash one day on earth. And we're also on facebook.com slash one day on earth. So uh, please uh, feel free to check us out. I mean, there's a lot of uh, really great professional DPs. Um, you know, Philip Bloom is participating. Um, Zach Mulligan, who won uh, Excellence in Cinematography at Sundance this year, is participating. There's a, there's a host of really interesting documentarians around the world. And, um, and Randall Kleiser, the director of Greece. Randall Kleiser, the director of Greece. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, and Flight of the Navigator and Blue Lagoon. Um, every day, it's, it's so exciting to be at the center of, of a community like this and, and seeing being energized by so many different people's um, ideas and passions every day because every day we get we Iraqi um, artist who teaches at NYU who's actually implanting a camera in his head and <laughs> I believe it or not I mean I know this right. sounds outlandish but it, it is like one of those things it's like nothing surprises me at this point okay so actually take me take me through that again this is this is someone <laughs> this is someone who's well, we we have to, to sh- we actually have to find a documentarian to follow him. From what I understand, I don't understand if the camera works or not. I haven't got the full slowdown. But one of our producers met with um, a gentleman who who is an instructor at NYU who's implanting a camera surgically in his head for a year, and um, he will you know basically said follow me around for the day with a camera <laughs> and you can put it in one day on Earth and we're like. Well, that sounds. We'll figure that out because that just sounds <laughs> radical. <laughs> That's probably going well, too far. It was like it was yesterday. Was that and the director of Greece signing onto the project? So it's sort of like that's, that's just, just one it, day. That's, Excellent. Yeah, that's one day. But um, so I mean, it's 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 interesting when we set forth with this. It's open to anyone, but we've been really certain to um, uh, really strive towards the people that are the best at this art. And then always make them the the uh, the point of uh, inspiration. And because of that, we've had a really great grassroots community of really strong filmmakers that that keep showing up day by day. So I hope it can continue that way. So absolutely. Well, best of luck with it. I think it's a fantastic idea. And stay in touch. Thank you so much, Jason. Okay, and just to repeat that website, I know we've already said it, but onedayonearth.org. And, and that looks good. I mean, it's what? How many, do you reckon, few, is it changed since you recorded that? How many? Like, people uh, a little thinking? bit. There's about, looks like there's about 3,000 people here now. But, uh, well, obviously it's going to be exponentially, I guess, increasing a bit of interest from, um, from now till 10, 10, 10. Uh, I just think it's, you know, it's an interesting project. Yeah, totally. I, I just love the idea of it. Um, since then, of course, bloody, I think Google and uh, um, uh, Ridley Scott have come up with some kind of rival sort of thing that's literally shooting in about two weeks' time, which seems to be a little bit more commercial and a bit more... Uh, well, this will be great. A bit more of a pass-off, I don't know. And, and came first. I'm looking forward to your... Effort. Yeah, no. Look, I, I'm probably just go down and do a, a sort of a mini version of the seaport stuff. I guess I just think it's a reasonably. I guess do something that I've, I, 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 I want to film I'm, you doing the seaport stuff. I want to do the making of video. <laughs> okay. Well, what I do, I am keen to see, as they mentioned in there, the uh, the the university student who's embedding the camera in his head for a year, and they'll be following him, not just getting his his vision, but uh, the, uh, the the footage from his head. <laughs> okay. 
Well, look, we're about out of time. Jace, where's the best place in for someone to uh, place for someone to, you know, stalk you? Stalk me on jasonwingrove.com, my website. I'm working on a blog. It's not ready yet, but uh, I think I may do. I've been inspired for years from Stu and, and never actually pulled my finger out. So coming soon. Uh, or or twitter.com slash wingrove. Or uh, some occasionally on the VFX show. Yes, and I'm you know, obviously on FX Guide is the best place to get me. And, of course, that course that we mentioned with Tyler. Yes. Um, the place where Stu's course is, um, fxphd.com. Uh, a new term has just started. And we want to thank uh, all our guests this week, in particular Stu, uh, for um, letting us uh, uh, tease him a bit yes. about his uh, blog post. Um, and uh, we'll catch you guys uh, next week. We uh, Actually, next week I'm going to be on location. So I say next week, but probably we'll... I'll call in after the Yellowstone shit because we're pretty much um, so far out. We don't even have internet uh, in the week um, yeah. right after that. But I'll call you from LA and we'll record one cool. via the phone. Excellent. Um, guys, keep the questions coming and the emails. I particularly want to have a couple of people just before we go also. Um, Will uh, is somebody that contacted us and said, um, you should really get Stu on. And, of course, we know uh, Stu pretty well. But uh, it, was Will's, uh, it was Will Backer, I think, who um, actually sort of, prodded me to actually phone up Stu and say hey why don't you come on and let us teach you a bit so thanks Will for that and thanks for everybody that uh, sends us our you know, comments and stuff we actually really really do uh, take your input seriously and we use it a lot uh, in formulating the show so thanks thank you thanks for listening if you have any questions or comments please email us red at fxguide.com Copyright 2010, FX Guide, LLC.